Jesus is difficult. We wish it was easy. In fact, we think it should be easy. But it's not. It's hard. That's just the way it is. And that reality is something that most people struggle to come to grips with. How about you? Hi, I'm Bernie Diamond, and thank you so much for joining me again on Christianity Works. Today we're kicking off a new series of messages that's called Following Jesus with Confidence because on those tough days, it's that quiet confidence in God that so often eludes us at a time when it's the very thing that we need. So let's head into God's Word. Adversity is a fact of life. It happens in all areas of our lives at different times in our finances, in our relationships, in our job, in our family, in our health, in our own thoughts and emotions and reactions. Last year on the program, I shared a series of messages with you called How to Stop Your Family from Falling Apart. Quite a number of people wrote to me and said, in effect, well, my family's already fallen apart. What about me? And so later on this year, we'll be chatting about marriage separation and divorce, losing a loved one, singleness, childlessness, because things don't always follow that old fairy tale ending of they lived happily ever after. My preference and your preference is that life should be easy. If not completely easy, then at least 10 or 15 or 20% easier than it is just at the moment. Just a little bit less of a struggle. Oh, and, and no major catastrophes, right? No major disasters that cause us pain. And the key here is our expectations. See, my parents' generation went through World War II. My dad fought in the German army on the Russian front. My mother lived through air raids and and the bombing of her home in Graz in Austria. And when I look at those people from that generation, whether European or Australian or wherever they come from, their expectations of life being easy aren't really as high as perhaps yours and mine. My generation, the baby boomers, we were born in the 1950s and 1960s in that golden era of prosperity and hope. Our parents, having suffered much through World War II, worked hard to give us a better life. All the modern electric kitchen gadgets and and televisions, okay, black and white, but televisions nevertheless, motor cars, all those things happened post-World War II, and they indeed gave us a better, more prosperous life. And so we baby boomers carry on that tradition with our children, Generation X and Generation Y, who carried on with their children, the millennials, and so on it goes. As prosperity boomed in the West, our expectations of what is normal became incredibly inflated. Prosperity is normal, peace is normal, success is normal. And of course, the advertising industry chimed in, feeding us, bombarding us constantly with those images of success. Now, what I'm describing doesn't apply everywhere. There are plenty of people listening today who live in desperate adversity, in refugee camps, in war-torn parts of the world. But even as I travel through those parts of the world, what I see is this this lure of prosperity that beckons from the West. Media is global today. TV, the internet, they're global. And so people feed on this inflated sense of expectations and we begin to imagine that success and peace and prosperity and comfort are the norm, or if not quite the norm, at least those are the things we should aspire to. And for men and women of faith, those of us who believe in Jesus we tend to drop this worldly model of success 
onto the Bible. We try and create our own blended theology of success. We expect that following Jesus should be easy. And when we discover that it isn't, many fall by the wayside. Surely if God loves me, he wants to bless me. Why am I having to deal with all these problems and challenges and issues and and conflicts and adversity? Either there's something wrong with him or there's something wrong with me. I don't know, but something isn't quite working the way it's meant to. Have you ever had that sort of thought process? Or perhaps if you haven't quite articulated it that clearly, as I talked about it, you find yourself nodding your head in agreement. Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm feeling. So before we can really talk about following Jesus with confidence, and hey, if I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to call him my Lord and my Saviour, then I want to follow him with a quiet confidence in my heart. But before we can talk about that, we need to deal with this expectation gap. Have a listen to this exchange between Jesus and a couple of would-be followers whom he met along the way. It comes from Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. A scribe then approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Seems to me that Jesus isn't calling you and me to a life of comfort. Following Jesus is a journey. And from what I can see here, Jesus isn't promising you and me a big house with two living areas, four bedrooms, a double garage and a nice suburb. He's setting out the reality plainly and simply that following him is an uncomfortable journey. I often wonder how that second guy felt, the one whose father had just died. Jesus, I really want to follow you, but but my dad's just died. I have to go and bury him first. And Jesus replies, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. The only words that I can come up with to describe that response from Jesus is harsh and unfeeling. If I'd been that guy, I'd have been thinking, do I, do I really want to follow this Jesus? But Jesus here was making a point, a strong point, about what it means to follow him. It's not a life of comfort or compromise. Here it is again, Jesus. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be. Be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether you have enough to complete it? Otherwise, when you've laid a foundation and you're not able to finish it, all who see that will begin to mock you, saying, This guy began to build but wasn't able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet those who come against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke chapter 14, verse 23 to 35. My friend, have you counted the cost? Are you expecting an easy ride with Jesus or do you see this stark reality that he's painting here? 
Of course, we go through times of great blessing in our relationships and in our circumstances from time to time. Well, most people do. But what Jesus is saying here is that suffering and sacrifice are the norm for a Christ follower. Most of us are worried about the single most important person on the planet, me. What's in it for me, we're asking, constantly. What do I get out of this? But Jesus said, If anyone to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me daily. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world, but they lose or forfeit themselves? Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 25. If we have the wrong expectation of Jesus, then we are never going to be able to follow him with confidence. Because some days it's going to get hard, really hard. That doesn't mean we've failed. It means that that's what Jesus promised. So let me leave you with this question before we go to the break. In your heart of hearts, what are you expecting of Jesus? Are you expecting what he promised? Or are you expecting what the world tells you you should be getting? Recently, my wife had an operation on her foot, and in those days, immediately after the operation, she was in a lot of pain. Now, she's an active woman out there doing things, planning things, helping people. It's just who she is. But in those few days after the operation, all she could focus on was the pain she was in. It's pretty natural. Acute pain has a way of blocking everything else out. I was still having to think about this and that and keep the ministry running, which she's normally involved in, get meals on the table, do the shopping. But for her, in those few days, it was pretty much all about dealing with the pain. Of course, you've been there, whether it was physical pain or emotional pain, and you know all about that. You know how pain seems to, seem to block out the rest of the world and convince you that the pain is all there is. It's our natural reaction to adversity, isn't it? We lower our gaze, we focus on the immediate, and nothing else matters. But as natural as that is, this reaction to adversity and pain, you know something? It doesn't serve us very well at all. And what magnifies our pain often is the unrealistic expectation that we shouldn't be having to deal with it at all. Hang on, I believe in Jesus. Surely, surely God wants to bless me. So why is this happening to me? That's often what we find ourselves thinking, right? When all along Jesus said, if any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world, but you lose your life? That's a picture of suffering and sacrifice, not comfort and compromise. And it seems to me that accepting this reality is one of the hardest things to do, and yet it's just so necessary if we're going to get the sort of perspective on life that allows us to follow Jesus with confidence. What do I mean by that? If we simply don't accept this reality, if we're kicking against it and struggling with the reality, if we refuse to accept delivery of the reality that Jesus promised to anyone who'd follow him, how can we possibly be in a place where we can follow him with confidence? Listen again to Jesus' own words, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. 
the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So there you are. You're travelling on that narrow, difficult road that leads to life because in your heart of hearts, you've chosen to follow Jesus, the road less travelled. Yet you're heading upwards on that difficult road, wishing that it was a whole bunch more like that wide, easy road that heads downwards to destruction. And this double-mindedness is going to kill you. This double-mindedness is what's stopping you from following Jesus with confidence because your heart is longing after the alternative. Double-mindedness is a real killer. Have a listen to this from James chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. Brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. But the problem is, how do we change our minds? It's easy for me to sit here in the comfort of a nice, isolated radio studio and tell you, look, don't be double-minded. And you're thinking, but it hurts so much. It's so hard. I'm struggling. I don't want to be double-minded, but I don't know how not to be. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes I have exactly the same problem. And the answer, the how, comes to us from God's Word. Let me read this short extract from the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. It's written by a man who's struggling, who's going through a lot of difficult times. And he tells us the how. Verses 97 to 114. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I don't turn away from your ordinances, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, it's a light unto my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it. To observe your righteous ordinances, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your decrees are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. My hope is in your word. Do you see the power of what this man's saying here? It's God's word that is a lamp to his feet to help him to take the next step and a light to his path so he can see a little way further ahead. The person who wrote this psalm is going through the whole adversity and pain thing just the way you and I do. He has enemies on his tail and the going is tough. But what he's saying here as he pours his heart out to God 
is that God's word is what makes all the difference. Listen again. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it's always with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your decrees are my meditation. Whenever someone who is going through a rough patch asks me, Bernie, what can I do? How, how can I find peace? How can I discover confidence and, and rediscover my faith in God? I ask them this question. How much time are you spending reading God's word, pondering it, meditating on it, turning it over in your mind, praying about it, thinking, thinking, praying? Invariably, the answer I get is little or no time at all. Man, I tell you, this is the only way to discover God's peace in the middle of the storm. Bible reading and prayer. I know it sounds glib. I know it sounds simplistic. I know it sounds like, here, take a couple of aspirin for your migraine. But it's not that at all. Prayer and Bible reading are simple and powerful. And the only way I've managed to get through some of the really rough patches in my life have been to listen to God speak to me through his word. You can read books. You can listen to guys like me yabber on. You can phone a friend. You can try all sorts of things. But I am here to tell you that there is nothing, nothing as powerful as God's word. His spirit uses it to strengthen you, to encourage you, to admonish you, to guide you and to give you wisdom. It just doesn't get any better than that. And yet so many of God's people are traveling through a rough patch but they leave their Bible in a bottom drawer or up on the shelf gathering dust or in a box in the storeroom. People, what's the matter with us? So what is your one thing? That one thing that right now is rocking you to the core, shaking your foundations. We don't like to admit that's what's going on in us. But let me tell you, as I sit here chatting with you, I certainly have my one thing that's testing my faith. See, we we go to church on a Sunday, we sing the songs, we listen to the sermon, we catch up with people afterwards, they ask us, so, how are you going? And we smile and we tell them, oh, it's just fine, how about you? In a well-rehearsed ritual as we hide our despair behind the mask that we put on before we left home. We want to believe that this Jesus is in this with us and we want to have the faith that we think we're supposed to have to get us through. But somehow it eludes us. I know you know what I'm talking about because anybody who has determined to follow Jesus has been in that place. Sometimes it's disillusionment. Sometimes we express it as anger or frustration or or by isolating ourselves. So the question that arises is this. When we're in that place of low confidence, overwhelmed as we often are by our circumstances and situations, what can we do? How can we get through that? How can you and I at this moment lay hold of the confidence in God that's eluding us in the difficult times? Well, let me pick up where I left off before the break. The only way in my experience that I'm able to lay hold of my faith in God You know, find it so that it makes a difference. Experience this confidence in God. Experience God's peace that I know I should have. Is to spend time in his word, the Bible, and in prayer, alone, just with Jesus, over and over and over again. Listen to this parable that Jesus told about persistence in prayer. It's a powerful one. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. 
Jesus said to them, imagine you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine has just arrived and I've got nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, don't bother me. The door's already been locked. My children are in bed with me. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you something because he is your friend, at least because of your persistence, he'll get up and give you whatever you need. So I tell you, ask and it'll be given to you. Search and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who searches finds. For everyone who knocks the door will be opened. Is there any among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give them a scorpion? So if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, God wants us to persist in prayer. Come back again and again, day after day. Ask, search, knock. Ask, search, knock. Why? Why does God do things this way? Why doesn't he just give us what we ask for the first time round? Because he wants to grow our faith and our confidence in him. He wants us to rest, to believe in his word, to pour out our hearts to him day after day. And you know what? In that process, as the answers to prayer come, what we discover is that all along the Holy Spirit, given to us by this gracious, loving God of ours, has been at work in us. Growing in confidence in anyone or anything is a process. Trusting a person, trusting the pilot on the plane in the middle of a severe storm, it happens through experience, right? The first time you hit one of those storms in a plane, you're petrified. And once you've done it a hundred times, you've got confidence. So why wouldn't it be the same in our relationship with God? It happens through a combination of faith and experience through the tough times. And as we travel through those tough times, God pours his Holy Spirit into us. And those times of one-on-one prayer and Bible reading, my friend, they're so precious. They're so incredibly precious and powerful because they deliver us the results. Now, maybe you don't believe me. So here's the thing. Try it. Just try it. You'll be amazed. been listening to Christianity Works with Bernie Dimet. Before we go, there's something truly important that I need to share with you. This podcast is only made possible through the prayer and support of friends like you. Each week, millions of people hear about Jesus through Christianity Works radio and television broadcasts and through podcasts just like this one. Your generous gift of support today will help take the gospel of Jesus Christ far and wide around the globe. Just stop by at ChristianityWorks.org and click the donate button. And when you do give, don't forget to request your free copy of this month's latest life application e-booklet. Thank you so much for your generous gift of support today. Again, that web address is ChristianityWorks.org. I'm Jennifer. We'll catch you again next time.